Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver sermon audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Pray with me, please, as we continue. Father, it is always a good and a needful, a right reminder of the loving self-sacrifice of our God. Father, when we consider John's words that God is love, we understand that not in a sentimental, whimsical, emotional sort of way, but a God who is wise and purposeful and disciplined in giving himself for the good of another. And Father, you brought all things into existence through the Son by the power of the Creator Spirit, that you would have a creation that could know and experience be flooded with your love, a creation that could know such sacrifice. such faithful, unrelenting labor in order to see the work of your hands be blessed in the fullest possible way. That your own presence and your love and your goodness and your grace and your wisdom would would flood your creation, flood this earth. And that in the center of that would be the human creature, created in your own image and likeness. That your intimate devotion and communion with your creation would center in man. And what a blessed thing that you created us, human beings, not only to be recipients of your sacrificial love, but to be those who are capable of such sacrificial love. To be those in whom your own glory can be reflected and radiated out into the world. Father, what a high calling, what a, what a precious privilege. I pray that you would press these things deeply on our hearts. And that even as we continue in worship, that you would truly draw from us the worship of submitted eager, zealous, delighted hearts and minds. We sanctify this time to you. We ask that you would honor our giving of it to you by glorifying Christ in our midst and by building us up in him. I pray, Father, that you would lead out my words, my thoughts, And that you would cause the words that you gave to this writer to the Hebrews, that you would give those words to bear rich fruit amongst us. Not just for this hour, but for the rest of our lives and for all eternity. Meet us in our need, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've seen the the way the writer has summed up his instruction concerning Jesus' priesthood uh, in a series of exhortations. Uh, First, a positive one, calling them to abide in drawing near, living out their intimacy with God, holding fast to the hope that they have in this Messiah, in, in God through the Messiah and his high priestly work. A calling to live out 
the life and the truth, the work of the Messiah in the way that, that his body functions, the devotion to one another. And then we saw he follows that up with a warning to them to persevere, a warning to be careful, a warning against the ever-present tendency to fall away. And today I want to finish up chapter 10 with the positive note on which the writer ends. He issues his warning, which he includes himself in, because he recognizes that this tendency, this inclination to wander away from God is something that every Christian faces. Every Christian must be disciplined uh, concerning and must be wise and mindful of. But he also had very strong confidence in these saints, even as we saw in chapter 6, that they really were those who would endure to the end, just as he had the same hope for himself. So really, this whole section has to be held together. Um, But I'd like to pick it up at verse 26, just to do the transition then uh, into the balance of the chapter. Today, we'll be considering specifically verse 32 through 39, the end of the chapter. And I've titled this Exhortation to Enduring Faith. Enduring Faith. He says, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer a sacrifice for sin, but only a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fire, the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? And as regarded as common, as unclean, as profane, the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But but remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great struggle of suffering partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession, an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet, in a very little while, he who is coming will come, and he will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. So the writer ends on this high note with a word of encouragement to them. It's an exhortation, but a positive word of encouragement to persevere in faith. And there are two dimensions to it. He calls them to a remembrance. He calls them to a backward gaze, but he also calls them to a forward gaze tied to the fact that this is a God who has promised. And in that sense, I think even to his Jewish readers, this would have had echoes of Israel's prophets, because this is the way Israel's prophets instructed the people on God's behalf. If you think about the the Old Testament prophets, they always called Israel's mind, the people of Israel, they called their minds back to their history with God reminding them of how God had called them in Abraham, how he had brought them, what, how he had carried them forward. He would rehearse their history with God, but set that in the context of what ultimately was the point of God's calling, where this was going, what this was all about. And in that way, by 
causing them to look back on their life with God in view of where this was ultimately going. They could understand their present. They could understand their circumstance. They could understand the difficulties, even if it was in a time of peace or blessedness for the nation or a time of calamity and unrest. They could understand their circumstance by being situated in the midst of this larger purpose of God that had carried them from the beginning and would all the way to the end. And the writer adopts that same approach here. He's calling them to reflect back on their own journey with Jesus, their journey as followers of the Messiah, but then also to look ahead to the destiny that they have in him. There's meaning and significance to the lives that they have. God's promise pertain to them. So again, together, these two considerations, and and, and both of these are calling for a conscious, intentional, disciplined consideration. Not just, hey, you know, spend a minute thinking about what happened in the past. This is go back and look very carefully and think and recall. Consider. And so also consider what this all means for the future. Those two glances backwards or those two considerations backwards and forward would put their present, these Hebrews, put their present challenge into perspective. And they were obviously facing challenges, as we know. The writer is writing to them out of concern that the pressures coming against them are going to actually cause them to Depart from the Messiah. They are in the midst of difficulties and struggles, challenges. And he wants them to put their own difficulties in proper context. And in that way, have their own zeal and their faith bolstered. That they would continue on with the Lord. There's kind of an overview of what he's getting at. So I want to treat this under those two parts of a call or an exhortation to enduring or persevering faith with that faith being bolstered by remembrance and then secondly by promise. Looking backward, looking forward. And the first thing he wants them to recall is what came, what their lives looked like after they came to faith in Jesus. He says, after you were enlightened. After they came to see this man, Jesus of Nazareth, as the Messiah of Israel, the long-awaited Messiah, what befell them? And he calls it a great conflict of suffering. What came to them as a result of their faith was a conflict of suffering. And he describes it in terms, it's a multifaceted thing, but he describes it in terms of open and even public abuse and humiliation, it being made a gazing stock. We live in a time where people especially don't like to be publicly humiliated in any way. But this was abuse, this was tribulation, this was persecution that had a very public face to it. It even involved imprisonment. In other words, a person now being, in a sense, labeled or categorized as a criminal. There was a criminality that was a part of the shame, the stigma, that these individuals bore. The suffering, the shame, this humiliation was both verbal and physical. It had a lot of dimensions to it. It was directed at them because of their own personal faith. It was also directed at them because they stood alongside others who were suffering in that way. 
When he says that you showed compassion to the prisoners, as I've said before, when the New Testament talks about visiting the prisoners, caring for the prisoners, it's not talking about a prison ministry at the Denver jail, although there's nothing wrong with that per se. The idea is don't forget your brothers and sisters who have been incarcerated in the cause of Christ. And in that world, as I've said also many times, when you were incarcerated, if people didn't come and care for your needs, you would die because they weren't going to feed you. They weren't going to give you a bed. They weren't going to give you a blanket. The prison at Ephesus is iron bars over a cave, and they threw you in there. And if you froze, oh well. This is just a holding tank until you die or until we move you on to the next thing. And so it was critically important that believers would stand with their brothers and sisters and bring food to them and bring a blanket to them, bring water to them, minister to them, or they would die. But it didn't allow you to hide if you did that. If your brothers and sisters were being imprisoned and now you show up to care for their needs, guess what? You're identified with them. You're now sharing in their criminality. And so if you're enduring this kind of reproach against yourself because of your own faith, you're doubling that when you stand alongside there with your brothers and sisters. It'd be easy to say, you know what, I'm just going to stay home because I got enough problems. I don't want to draw any more attention. I don't want to draw any more animosity against myself. I have to look out for myself at a certain level. I have to preserve my own well-being. I have a family to care for, whatever it happens to be. These were individuals who were willing to suffer not only for the sake of their own faith, but in solidarity with their brothers and sisters. So that even if it hadn't come to them yet, by aligning themselves with their brothers and sisters whom this this persecution had come to, it would now be targeted at them. They would have themselves in the crosshairs. Personal circumstances might compel a person to have to surrender his own well-being. The, the idea here, possessions, is more broad than simply your material stuff. It, it really means that, with, that of which life consists. All of the things that make up our well-being in this world, not just our, our money or our, you know, the, the furniture in our house or whatever it happens to be. It's the things that actually allow us to live all of what our subsistence in the world consists of. And they were willing to have that be taken from them, not only for the sake of their own faith, but for the sake of their brothers and sisters as well. They stood in solidarity with those who were suffering. Sacrificial love. But through all of that, he says, remember... What came to you? And the point is that this wasn't just arbitrary or random or coincidence. These things that the writer is identifying, and he's detailing them. So either he was present somehow with this community in the context of, of this emergence of a new Christian community, and all of this firestorm comes against him. Either he was there with them, or at least he had enough of a connection with them that he was aware of what they had endured. Because he just doesn't say, I know you suffered. He tells them the details of that. But all of that suffering was precisely and entirely because of their commitment to Jesus. It wasn't for any other reason. It was because having come to know him and embrace him as Messiah, they now manifested that in a way that all of this came against them. This is suffering in Christ. This isn't suffering because you're a jerk or an idiot or a criminal or a lawbreaker or whatever it happens to be. He says, remember the conflict of suffering, but also remember how you endured it. You didn't shrink back. You didn't fall away. You not only endured it, 
you embraced it with joy. You embraced it joyfully. Why? Because what he's wanting them to think back on is, why would people do that? Why did they do that? Because they like to suffer? Because they're masochists? Because they're trying to make a point about how great and noble and virtuous they are? No. This wasn't altruistic. This wasn't philanthropy. I, I care about my fellow man per se. This was the manifestation of the conviction of who they were, what it meant to be followers of Jesus. They embraced it because they understood that they had now entered into a new realm of subsistence, if you will. The way in which they found security, the way in which they found well-being, the, 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 the way in which their lives were ordered, all of that has been turned upside down. If you will, it's not that they don't have to eat anymore or drink anymore or whatever. It's that their whole sense of what their life consists in has been altered. He says, you have a better subsistence, an abiding one. They endured the way they did joyfully, embracing even the suffering of their brethren because they understood that the realm of their inhabitation, their provision from God was of an an entirely different sort. And ultimately what that possession is, is the full inheritance of all that God has ordained for his image children. The full inheritance. And remember, again, we've seen this throughout Hebrews, that as as the writer exalts Christ as the ascended, glorified priest-king, he says, that's your destiny. You are joint heirs with Christ, heirs of all that Christ is heir to. His self-giving was to bring many sons to glory. That's this new subsistence that Christians live in view of. So he said, look back, look back. But he said also that there is this obligation to look forward. When they look back on their journey with Jesus, the issue isn't just to say, okay, yeah, he was with you and he cared for you through that process. But as I said, it was a reminder. It was them reminding themselves of not just that they suffered or how hard it was to suffer, but really why that suffering had come in the first place. If you will, why they had embraced Jesus and what it meant to be his disciples, what that had meant for their lives. And they had come to recognize, as I said, that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. And believing that, they laid hold of him. Because they understood that if Jesus is the Messiah, then this work of deliverance and renewal and purging And in gathering, if you will, the coming of the kingdom of God that is God's new creation, that is true. That has happened in the Messiah. And therefore, by embracing him, if they had embraced him as the Messiah, they had themselves laid hold of this new creation. And that's what set them in antithesis with the world. Think again about Ephesians 4. I'm not going to go back and read it. But Paul talks about this change that comes. You no longer are as the Gentiles are, living in the futility of your mind, understanding dark and separated from the life of God. You have come to know Christ because Christ himself has taught you by his spirit. You have his mind. You have now been made sharers in him. You have already been raised up in him. You have passed out of death into life. Therefore, you now inhabit a different way of being human that puts you at odds with the world. That's why this came against you. 
By embracing Jesus, they had embraced God's new creation in which he is the first fruits. But that reality of fulfillment, that reality of, of, of a new way of, of living life, a new kind of, a new way of being human, that fulfilled promise in the Messiah also meant continuing promise. Because the fulfillment in the Messiah still looks to full fruition, right? And so it can't just be a backward look. It can't just be Jesus came and he died on a cross for my sins, and therefore I'm forgiven, and now I get on with my life. The the fulfilled promise in the Messiah means a continuing promise that looks to the consummation of the last day. In other words, the new creation, the inauguration of the kingdom of God in the Messiah looks to the day when all things are summed up in that renewal. Isn't that 1 Corinthians 15? This was the, the marrow of Paul's understanding, right? Philippians 3, pressing on, pressing on. So they have to look forward, too. They look back, but they look forward. The fulfillment of promise in the Messiah points to the, in, the ongoing promise uh, of God that is to be consummated in the Messiah himself. And that promise, the writer says, holds out a reward. Fulfilled Promise awaiting full fruition in the consummation at the return of Jesus, that is the basis of their confidence. He says, you have great confidence. Don't cast it aside. And it's not the confidence of, yeah, I think I'm pretty good at this, or, I, I, you know, not that kind of confidence. It's, it's a settled, stable, bold assurance. It's a confidence in not just the promise of God, but the God who has promised. What he has promised. And the veracity of the God behind the promise. He says, you have that sort of confidence. That's what's brought you to this point. That's what's strengthened you and allowed you to joyfully endure all that you've endured. Don't let that confidence go. The hope in the promise of God that has brought you this far continues on. It hasn't gone anywhere. It hasn't gone anywhere. That's the sense in which we need to understand this idea of a promise of reward. This this noun here, translated reward, only occurs in Hebrews, and it really has the idea of an appropriate recompense. It can be negative, it can be positive, it can mean retribution. It's basically your just desserts. Here it obviously is very positive, but it really means an appropriate recompense. And so reward is is a good rendering as long as we keep in mind that connotation of propriety or appropriateness. It's not arbitrary, okay, you got some reward out there. This isn't the idea of you have the confidence that you're going to heaven when you die and therefore uh, hang on to that. Your reward is bliss in heaven forever. That's not what he's talking about. This reward, this appropriate recompense that is appointed for you is the fullness of your present participation in this purpose of God for his creation. Your participation, your role in the destiny that God has ordained for his creation. This all-encompassing destiny that has human beings at its center. The reward is your share in that. Not, I'm going to hang in there because when I die and I get to heaven, then my wife won't be nagging me anymore and I can fish every day. 
And I know I'm being silly, but, you know, we tend to think that way. I can hang on because one day my reward is coming. And, of course, my reward is the best of all possible eternal outcomes based on what I think would be pleasing and and fun for me. I don't have to deal with this anymore. I don't have to deal with that anymore. I just get an eternity of bliss based on what I think bliss is about. That's not what the writer is talking about. This reward, again, he's putting in front of them that what you have endured is not pointless. What you're enduring now is not pointless. It has a goal. The ultimate goal is the summing up of everything in the heavens and the earth and the Messiah, but you sit in the center of that. And the writer intended that that, the confidence of that reward, would bolster their faith and give them a persevering spirit. At that point, then, he turns to the prophecy of Habakkuk to reinforce his point. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. The writer is citing from the prophet Habakkuk. And as you hear me say all the time, and, we, and we've seen over and over again through the book of Hebrews, but it's, a, it's an important principle for us to understand. The writer isn't simply saying, I want to think of a, because I know these guys are going to care what the scripture says, so I want to think of a verse someplace that talks about persevering in faith. Oh, I know Habakkuk too. That's not what he's doing. He's not simply trying to find a verse that has some of the words that fit into what it is he's talking about. That's not how he's using the scripture. He's turning to Habakkuk because of what that particular prophet and prophecy, the circumstance, the historical context, what it is that God was communicating there, how that applies to his readers. And so obviously we have to begin by saying, okay, what is the prophecy of Habakkuk about? It's very short, it's very straightforward, but Habakkuk was one of the last of the prophets to Judah right before the Babylonian siege and captivity. Probably during the the reign of Jehoiakim, because that time he speaks about how Judah's uncleanness and idolatry and evil is so great. And he's aware that Babylon is right at the door. Babylon has now become the predominant empire power in the Middle East. It supplanted the Assyrians, and they're moving. They're moving from Babylon southwest, and they're eating up all of these nations and empires as they move along. And if you read the the, the prophecy of Habakkuk, you see graphic uh, images of, of of the might of that nation and the brutality of that nation. You know, perhaps an image that we could draw on is is a tank that just rolls over everything, knocks over trees, destroys everything, leaves absolute devastation in its wake. That was Babylon. And typical of ancient empires, they used brutality as a way to intimidate and get nations to cow before them. They would do the most unimaginable things to get people to say, wow, we're not going to mess with these guys. Give them, you know, we're just going to roll over. We're going to surrender. Well, this is probably somewhere around 608, 607 BC, and the first incursion into Judah by the Babylonians was in 605. But the point is is that Habakkuk knows the Babylonians are coming. And God has made it clear to him that I am bringing the Babylonians as my instrument of judgment. In the words of Jeremiah, Babylon is my war club. 
And Habakkuk asks God, he's wrestling with God, and he asks him, he says, essentially, this is my paraphrase, but where is the righteousness? You are a righteous God. Where is the righteousness as evil and as idolatrous as your people are? Where is the righteousness in punishing them with a brutal pagan nation that is far worse than they are? How does that make sense? And God's response is, in, in a, again, a very elaborate way, this is perfectly just. I am bringing Babylon against Judah. Judah's all that's left of David's kingdom. The northern kingdom has been gone for nearly, well, 120 years or so anyway. And God says, this is just. This is deserved. But don't think that I'm overlooking the wickedness and brutality of Babylon. I am going to turn Judah into a heap of stones in a desolation, a haunt of jackals. And it's going to be a bloodbath. The siege is going to last for two years, and all this isn't in Habakkuk. But what's coming against Judah is something that they had never experienced and they couldn't imagine, the brutality of it. Essentially, the Babylonians just locked him in the city, formed a ring around the city, and said, okay, we'll wait. And they waited two years. They couldn't get in. They couldn't get out. They couldn't get food, sickness, disease, famine. They waited till they were weakened, and then they breached the walls and took the whole thing down. But Jeremiah talks about how in the siege of that day, when they're cut off, the, the woman whose feet are too delicate to touch the ground, they'll be fighting for the afterbirth that issues between her legs, and they'll be saying, whose child do we eat today? In the horror of that siege. And God says, it's coming. I'm not going to relent. But that doesn't mean that I'm overlooking Babylon. And you see in Jeremiah 50, 51, God says, I am going to deal with Babylon. And he says also in Habakkuk, I am going to deal with Babylon. But he tells Jeremiah also, or not Jeremiah, Habakkuk also, that yes, destruction, desolation, exile is coming to Judah But unlike Babylon, their destruction is set in the context of promise. There is no promise beyond Babylon's destruction, but there is promise for the house of Abraham. This destruction won't be the last word. And so when God, when when, um, again, Habakkuk puts this word before God, he says then in chapter 2, I will stand on my guard post, station myself on the rampart. I will keep watch to see what the Lord will speak to me. How are you going to answer this dilemma that I have? How can you punish your people? How can you destroy them with someone far worse than them? Then the Lord answered me and said, record the vision, inscribe it on tablets. What I'm going to reveal to you, I want you to record it. That the one who reads it may run, for the vision is yet for the appointed time. It's for the end time. It hastens towards the end, towards the appointed goal. It will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it. It will certainly come. What? This vision, what I'm going to reveal to you of how this is going to play out. Write it down, record it, that you'll remember it, that you'll hold on to it. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right with him, but the righteous will live by his faith. And as you go down, then, as God reveals all of how this is going to play out through the balance of the prophecy, the way that Habakkuk responds at the end is he says, I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble. Because I must wait quietly for the day of distress. Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, everything fails. 
and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there no, be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in Yahweh, the God of Israel. I will rejoice in the God of my deliverance. The Lord God is my strength. He makes my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on high places. End. You see, the point is, is God didn't say, okay, I'm going to relent. He said, no. The obligation, God's answer, uh, the, the citation that the Hebrews writer draws on is part of God's answer to Habakkuk. How can you do this? And God says, you have to wait patiently. And it doesn't mean it's going to go easy for you. In fact, Habakkuk and everyone of the remnant of David's house at that point has to go through this siege. And the vast majority of them will be slaughtered. And those that aren't slaughtered or die in the siege, uh, you know, famine and disease on, on the city of Jerusalem, they'll be dragged away to Babylon. And the Babylonian king will only leave the poorest of the land as his serfs, to still produce some crops and keep the land going for the sake of sustaining his empire. That's what they have to wait patiently for. That's why he says, fear grips me. I stand here and I think about this and fear grips me. They have to go through this. And the truth is, very, very few, if any, we don't know for sure, but very, very few of these people of Judah who go through this would actually live to see God bring his punishment against Babylon. All they're going to see is God's hand against the house of David. They won't be alive when God finally deals with Babylon down the road. But the heart of the issue in in chapter 2, the heart of the section that the writer quotes, is that the wait, the vision is for the end. It will come. It's hastening. The goal is set. It will come. The issue there is the promise of God that he will deal with the oppressing, destroying power, and he will again restore his people according to his faithfulness to Abraham and to David. So the vision that he says, hold on to it, preserve it, and wait, wait patiently in view of it, ultimately has this high point, God will yet be faithful to his people. This is not the end. It's the end for Babylon, not the end for the house of David. He will yet restore David's house and throne and kingdom. Well, that's the context that the writer of Hebrews is drawing from, and that helps us to understand why and how he's using that passage. The promises that God bound Habakkuk to and and the, the Israelite remnant with him, he said, hold fast to this. This whole idea of my righteous ones will live by faith Hold fast to this promise. That promise was fulfilled in the Messiah. It wasn't just fulfilled in the destruction of Babylon. Because the larger promise is, in that day I will arise, I will destroy the subjugating, oppressing power, I will liberate, I will heal, I will redeem, I will renew the covenant, I will regather. I will restore David's house and throne and kingdom. What Habakkuk and these citizens of Judah were to wait for ultimately was fulfilled in the Messiah himself. But that fulfilled promise, as I said, has still a continuing quality to it. Because the promise of God to Habakkuk, to the Israelites, fulfilled in the Messiah, looks to a consummate, realization. So the point is, is that these Hebrews themselves have to also live in patient faith. There's a promise set in front of them, just as there was a promise set in front of their Israelite ancestors. 
the fulfillment of God's promises in the Messiah established a new dimension of promise that stretches out to the parousia, the resurrection at the end of the age and the summing up of everything in the Messiah. And so they too live in promise. But they actually have a greater obligation of patient faith than Habakkuk and these sons of Judah because Habakkuk and the Judahites were to hold fast to God's promise of this shadowy, unclear commitment that he had made that he would be faithful to his covenant and he would arise and he would somehow in connection with this messianic figure do this work. The Hebrews were holding fast, enduring in faith in view of a promise that was really just the fullness of the promise already fulfilled in the Messiah. This will become very clear in chapter 11 as we move on into the next chapter. They had a greater obligation of faith because they, they were those upon whom the ends of the ages had come. They had seen that fulfillment that God had promised. And now they were living in faith of the full fruitfulness of it. They were living in the hope of the resurrection of the last day as those who were already raised up in the Messiah, who already stood in the time in which Messiah had been raised and seated at the right hand of all power. They had less excuse for faithlessness. They had greater obligation of faithfulness. That's what he's getting at when he says, in a very little while, he who is coming will come. Now, he does make the shift in Habakkuk's prophecy is it will come. What will come? The fulfillment of this vision of God's purpose, this promise that goes back to Abraham, that will come. But that thing that God says, hold on to it, it will come, becomes embodied in the Messiah himself. Therefore, it's he who is coming will come. And now, looking to the ultimate unveiling or revealing, the parousia is again the unveiling of the triumphal Lord. The fullness of the promise. Well, I want to just, in in a sense, kind of pull this together in in terms of some ideas that I think tend to, to often get us off track. He says again, here's the heart of his exhortation. Don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward. You have need of endurance so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. And I want us to recognize something that I think we often miss in this thing of of living out our faith day by day. And that's how this idea of righteousness by faith ties in with doing the will of God. We don't often connect those things in the same way because we've been trained through many centuries when we hear righteousness by faith, we think in terms of how does a man get right with God so he can go to heaven? Is it by faith or by works? And that's not what the writer's talking about. But because of the way that we associate these concepts, if you will, with righteousness by faith as an issue of justification, doing the will of God as a matter of sanctification, we we don't hold these things together in the way that the writer is doing. And these Hebrews would have understood, as did the Jewish people, that these things of faith and faithfulness Faith and faithfulness are really kind of the same thing. It, it just the, the activity of faith is faithfulness. And faithfulness is this idea of fidelity, upholding what is true. Faith and faithfulness were the marrow of Israel's obedience. Because again, Torah, Israel's law, established this relational dynamic between God and Israel. Obedience to Torah was fidelity. It was relational fidelity. The works of the law were not a way that you earn your way into heaven. The works of the law, Torah works, were the way in which Israel lived out authentically its relationship with God. 
Torah works were works of faithfulness, fidelity to the covenant. And you see this throughout the writings of the Old Testament, but you see it in the New Testament as well. Even Paul can say, whatever directive or commandment of Torah you want to point to, it was really about this obligation ultimately of what? Love, loving God, loving your neighbor. Relational fidelity. And that's critically important, I think, saints, to understanding what the writer's trying to get at. He's tying together patient, enduring faith, which is this thing of active faithfulness, with righteousness that is doing the will of God. And those things he binds together with this, these uh, concepts of promise and reward. And if we don't understand what he's talking about, then we're not going to see the richness of what he's getting at and we'll actually have a tendency to fall short of the exhortation. He believed all of these things would, would strengthen the zeal and the resolve of these saints to hold fast. And it's important that we understand what he's getting at if we're going to hold fast as well. We can't abstract this idea of doing God's will unto future reward from this whole notion of faithfulness. If you ask a Christian, what does it mean to do God's will in view of future reward? Most of the time, people will think in terms, and they'll, they'll express this in terms of striving to be obedient to God's commandments with the hope of the reward of heaven. And yes, I recognize that that Jesus has done this for me, but now I still need to be obedient. And my hope, in a sense, my, my obedience to commandments, my obedience to the directives of God is the way that I know I'm saved. My works don't save me. They're the evidence that I'm saved. But that's the way that we tend to want to think about these things, and that's not what he's getting at. The reward is not the reward of heaven that is obtained because Jesus has met God's righteous standard, and now we need to do our best to conform to that standard as well. God's will that the writer is talking about is not a moral and ethical standard that he expects people to live up to. They can't. Jesus did. In other words, God says, this is the way that you need to conduct your life, if you will, a a works covenant, and we can't do it, but Jesus did it, and therefore that perfect works obedience gets reckoned into our account somehow. The will of God is not a moral or ethical standard. It is his active, persistent commitment to his design for his creation. And the achievement of that design is his children's reward. The will of God is his active, persistent commitment to his purpose for his creation and the realization of that purpose is his children's reward. It's not God has a moral standard. He wants his will done. Can I do it? No, I can't. I'm not sinlessly perfect. Jesus is sinlessly perfect. He did it. If I believe in him, then I get the reward, which is heaven. You see the difference? That's not what he's talking about. So people do the will of God when they share God's heart, mind, and will. When they are themselves devoted to the goal that God is devoted to. When we are devoted to what God is devoted to. Well, what does that look like? It looks like Jesus. Jesus said, you see me, you see the Father. What I say perfectly corresponds with my Father's own heart and mind and will. What I do is the perfect... um, manifestation of the works of God. My works are the Father's works. My words are the Father's words. Jesus was of one heart and mind and will with his Father. His whole, everything he did was oriented towards the goal that the Father had in mind. That's how he did the will of God. The obligation to do God's will is the obligation 
Here I'm trying to tie it into this whole thing of abiding in faith. The obligation then, he says, when you've done the will of God, you will receive what is promised. Okay, it begs the question, what's the will of God? The obligation to do God's will is the obligation to live into life's moments, circumstances, and challenges with the mind of Christ in the power of the Spirit. Righteousness is not a a moral category per se. It's an authenticity truth category. My righteous one will live by faith. It's the idea, again, of fidelity, faithfulness. When a thing is conformed to the truth, it is righteous. It's not a behavioral category in the first instance. The right, when God said to Habakkuk, my righteous ones will live by faith, those who really are one with me, those who think the way I think, those who are bound over to what I'm bound over to, those who are pursuing what I'm pursuing, what does that look like? It looks like a life of faith. Faith not in the sense of believing information, but a heart, mind, and life that are bound over to what God says is true, to what God says this is all about. Meeting life's circumstances and challenges and moments with the mind of Christ in the power of the Spirit. That's what the writer was exhorting, exhorting these readers to. You have need of endurance, not just hanging in there till you get to go to heaven, but actually living Life with the mind, with the understanding, with the orientation that conforms to the truth of God's own purposes and what he's doing. And that doesn't mean, saints, it doesn't imply that God gives us insight into what he's doing. It doesn't mean that he always explains to us or really ever explains to us what he's doing. He doesn't explain why our circumstances are this way. He doesn't uh, give us insight into all of these difficulties and these things that meet us in life. Faith isn't sight. But what it does mean is that this thing of enduring in faith is this discipline of situating the things of life, the things that meet our experience, the things that are around us, the things that are a part of our own experience, situating those things within, as I said, our understanding of what God has accomplished in Christ. The ultimate goal that that accomplishment is working towards and our own place and destiny within that purpose and accomplishment. God doesn't explain to us why this happened. Why did this person die? Why did this car crash, car crash happen? Why did I lose my job? Why do I have cancers? Why this? Why? He doesn't give us those answers. But when Paul says God is working all things for the good of those who love him, he's not just saying in some whimsical, mystical way, God is a good God and that's enough for me. He's saying this is a very purposeful thing that God has scripted you into. And the past and the present and the future are all the orderliness and the wisdom and the goodness of God towards this destiny that you were written into. My righteous one will live by faith. And when we do that, saints, it enables us to embrace the circumstances of life with joy. Not with understanding, but with joy, with peace, with settledness, with contentment. Knowing that in all of these things, God is working towards this purpose to sum up the whole creation in the Messiah, that he at last would be all in all. And I'll just piggyback uh, on top of Steve reading from Philippians 2, because as Paul talks uh, about this obligation to have in ourselves the mind of Christ, to think the way Christ thinks, to 
live and, and work out the, the circumstances of our life with the mind of Christ. Have this mind which was, that was in Christ Jesus. Have it in you. Paul says, I count what, whatever was gained to me, I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Doesn't mean I don't have any property now anymore, but my whole sense of everything in life has been rethought. It's been taken up in a whole new different way of perceiving this life. I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as manure that I may gain Christ, be found in him. Not having a rightness that is derived from my conformity to God's Torah, but as that rightness, that righteousness has been embodied in the Messiah himself. And I am now a participant in that. That I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed even to his death with an understanding and unto the goal that I would attain to the resurrection from the dead. Brethren, I haven't obtained all this. I haven't already been made consummately perfect in the Messiah, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. And I do not regard myself as having yet laid hold of it, but what I do is I forget what's behind and I press on. I reach forward like a a runner racing, you know, reaching out towards the tape. I reach forward to the goal of the prize of God's upward call in Christ Jesus. And brethren, as many of us as are mature, we need to have this attitude. If in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal it to you. But we have to live up to that which we have attained. And so join in following my example and observe those who walk according to this pattern that we have given to you. For there are many in the church who walk, as I have often told you, and tell you again now, even weeping, that really, in effect, they are enemies of the cross of Christ. They are living as if new creation hasn't come in him. They are living as if nothing has changed. They have made common the blood of the the covenant with which he was sanctified. They're living as if the only thing that's changed is that they're now forgiven and they get on with their life and they get to go off to a wonderful place called heaven when they die. They're not living as if they have died and they have been raised up and seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. If any man is in Christ, new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new has come. They don't live in that way. They live as enemies of the cross of Christ, effectively, Their end, therefore, is destruction because their God is still their natural appetites, the way they naturally think, the way they naturally live, the things they're naturally attracted to, what they naturally prioritize, what they naturally give themselves to. Their God is their appetite, and in that way, their glory is actually in their shame. They are deniers of what has come in the Messiah. Their minds are set on earthly things. But saints, he says, our citizenship is in the heavenly places where we are raised up, seated in the Messiah, from which also we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Messiah, Jesus, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with his own glorious body by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. And so, Paul says... My beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in that way, with that understanding, with that perspective, stand firm in the Lord. You have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you will receive what is promised. He who is coming will come, and he will not delay. But those who walk according to the truth live by faith. Father, these are things that we need to really chew on. We need to really give ourselves to. It's so easy for us to, again, set these things aside for all kinds of reasons. And really, though we would never want to say it, we would never want to admit it, 
we really want to be content with the fact that whatever problem there was that would keep us out of this happy place called heaven, Jesus has dealt with that. And now we can heave a sigh of relief and we can get on with our life knowing that when we die, our spirit's going to squirt into this happy place where everything's going to be wonderful for us forever. And Father, that in many ways can cause us to actually hide from the circumstances of life, to go and try to wait in a safe place until the rapture comes or until we can die and go off to heaven. It can cause us to even continue to live as natural people who don't recognize that everything in life has changed if we are in the Messiah. And we have a whole different perspective, a whole different way of thinking, a whole different way of being human. I pray that you would give us that sort of a disciplined mind and that we would walk in that way, moment by moment, hour by hour, persevering in prayer, faithfulness, the discipline of hearts and minds set on the Messiah who himself is enthroned at your right hand. We have died. Our lives are hidden with Christ in you. I know, Father, I say this all the time, and it sounds like a broken record, and I preach it to my own heart because it's very easy for us to not live out the truth as it is in Christ, the truth of our own share in his new creation, to go on as if all things are the same, as if we're the same, as if the world is the same, as if nothing was accomplished but the bare forgiveness of sins. Forgive us for that. By your good spirit, continue this work of conforming us in all things into the likeness of Christ our Lord. And may it manifest itself in the faithfulness of moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day, in plenty, in want, in rest, in sleeplessness, in difficulty, in the absence of difficulty. May we be faithful. May we wait patiently in the hope of that day. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.